Obscenity warning. That's how I'm going to start obscenity warnings now. It's just like, obscenity warning. 2018 is the year of renewed civility. So language shouldn't be a problem. But in case it is, in case we have been coarsened beyond salvation in 2017, and it's going to take us some time to work our way in, give those in your room with delicate ears some earmuffs or send them out of the room gently with a pat on the tush. This is your obscenity warning. Hello, J. Crew. This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, the 2018 version. I'm joined this week by the 2018 versions of Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. I don't hear the new voice that our readers keep talking about. I don't hear it either. I mean, it's been a while we've, since we've recorded, so maybe it's like developed further. But thank you for listing me first in 2018, yes. starting off on the right on the right foot. And Tablet Senior Writer Liel Leibowitz. Uh, you hear my new voice? That Shlomo is back? Very beautiful voice. Technically your old voice. Shlomo's back. That's what you had when you <laughs> came over here. <laughs> Before the uh, voice job that I had. <laughs> Our interview would be amazing <laughs> if you could do that. It's like a doctor. I don't want to sound like this. I sound well, very you know stupid. Where they do that. It's it... like, well, uh, sir, you could do. Uh... <laughs> you know where they do that is the the unbelievably so bad it's good movie Face Off with Nick Cage That's and right. John Travolta, where he has to get his voice re-engineered in addition to having his face switched. Oft. That's right. Wouldn't you <laughs> want to switch faces with Nicolas Cage? If I was John Travolta, yeah. <laughs> um, our interviewees this week, lots of Jews, uh, Rabbi Joe Hampel of Morgantown, West Virginia. When I was down there to give a talk, I sat with him for a while, and his story is amazing. It's off the hook, amazing. And, he's a very stable genius, is what you're saying. He's a very stable genius. He's, his stability and his ingenuity are both uh, are, are Jewish, in fact. He has a, a Yiddish cup. And uh, the founding members of the Afro-Semitic Experience, a band that fuses African-American and Jewish musical traditions and fuses African-Americans and Jews, in fact, because they're on the band. And, Much better uh, than the previous iteration of the band, the anti-Semitic experience. <laughs> <laughs> it really didn't work That's quite so well. That's just on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, the, the Afro-Semitic experience, which I've seen live uh, several times, uh, they are dedicated to promoting music of the African and Jewish diasporas. And it's they're real. amazing. They rock. Mm -hmm. It's going to be fun. really exciting to have them. Um, so I have, I have a lot to report, but Stephanie, you have a new voice. And what else? I have a new voice. Um, I don't have a new face. Yeah, you look a lot I like Nicholas Cage. I have but. to say, <laughs> since the nose job episode... I'm getting a lot of messages from friends being like, I love your nose. Like, what are you talking about? Ben's like, what are you talking about? My grandmother, who I, as I told you, always says I have a beautiful nose, was like, I think you were just fishing for compliments. I'm, my my gra grandpa Al was like, I think I was very, your grandmother was very upset with how you described yourself. And I was like, am I being gaslit right now? Like, everyone's just like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, guys, let's all like get on the same page here. Like, I'm fine. I was just being, you know, honest and open. People on Twitter were like, don't change a thing. Well, there is there is a weird thing when, I mean, this this all is very complicated and very deep and goes into all sorts of issues, not just about Jewish self-perception, but the self-perception all of us have, right? Like, here's the issue. Like, the issue is that you were going on talking about what you have perceived to be a flaw at some times, but that you've made your peace with, but you're a really good looking person. And that's yeah, a hard- thank you. I mean, that's just true. And- that's a weird thing. I think there are people who don't know how to deal with that complex of issues. Do you know what I mean? 2018 is starting off really great for me. So thank <laughs> you. I, it turns out I was fishing for compliments. I have found them. And you found I'm them everywhere. Amazing. Um, I have news that actually isn't about me. It's it's pretty exciting. I don't know if you guys remember Hannah Lanky and Ryan Fackler. They are the couple, the first couple we heard from who got a second cat after the Carol Wilburn episode. And they were at our, our cocktail party. Yes. Ryan was there and he was like, I have to tell you, we got a yes. second cat. 
they got engaged hey. over the break. Hey. I couldn't even mazel wait till for the mazel tov to tell you guys this. He proposed while they were skiing in Wyoming, which I don't, whatever. That's, I guess that's what people do. And I wanted to just like, they're two cats, puppy and squirrel, or they're all going to be a real family As now. an engagement gift, I think we should send him another cat. A third cat. A third cat. <laughs> we're going to send him Carol Wilburn <laughs> with a cat. She was a small lady. She could fit. There are UPS boxes bigger than Carol Wilburn. I'm just so happy for them. And her sister actually emailed me to tell me. Oh my God. That's true. Liel, wonderful people. How have the weeks been without us? It's been great. Engaged in the, uh, you know, three. Am I engaged? Yes, I'm engaged. <laughs> I've been um, engaged in the three R's reading, resting, and drinking heavily, uh, which was a lot of fun. Uh, Is that like Jim Ted Laundry from Jersey Shore? Yeah, that was basically what, what life was nice. about. It was yeah. lovely. So, um, I feel like we should move on to the present exchange, although it's not an exchange. You guys gave me your presents at Hanukkah. We're doing the present present exchange. We're doing the present present exchange. I have um, – I my presents are late, but they're good. And I would invite you – so, Stephanie, would you would you care to – look at – first of all, let's talk about the wrapping. I this wrapped. is some festive, sparkly blue wrapping. It has like – it has snowflakes say, on it. It's, it's a little bit goyish for my – I was actually going to say it's – it's uh, to me, it's not tad. because it's a light blue with a – there's enough white snowflakes that it's sort of like blue and white. There's some red on it. Can but I say, no green. Stephanie, the presence of a snowflake to me disqualifies <laughs> the whole thing. I was going to say, that's what you're saying, right? Is of if course. there are snowflakes, it's goyish. That it's not true. It's winter. What, we can't have snowflakes now, guys? Snowflakes? Uh, Goyish. Goyish. I want to crazy goyish. You sound like a little bit of a snowflake right now. Okay, oh. I'm opening mine. All right. This is <laughs> Aunt Marty's original nose warmer, a soft kitty. Oh my god. Version. It is says tired of a cold nose? Try a nose warmer by Aunt Marty. A unique practical way to keep your nose warm. Do I put this on so my nose? Basically, this, this is, is to take care of your, of your injured a, post-op nose. That's amazing. Oh my and god, it's a, a cat. cat nose and I just right. tie it's it to my nose. Hold I, on. I'm, I'm going to take a photo of this and this will be in the uh in the newsletter. This is this. A, I'm glad this fits on my nose. It's a knit cat that fits around your ears and Hold sticks on. out to your nose. Look at me. Hold on. Smile. This it's is fogging up my glasses. Amazing things I've ever seen. Ready? Perfect. And on that happy note, on that happy note, my we, my substantially larger package. Yes, <laughs> things I don't want to hear Leah Leibowitz say. I know you. <laughs> this gift's a little more obvious. This is like, dun, 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 dun. it is a very beautiful a uh, t-shirt. <laughs> Guns and Moses. Do you have this shirt, Leo? I, I do not. You don't and have I'm this. This is very happy to have it. This is for Jewish gun owners. I absolutely love it. <laughs> Mark, thank you for this gift. You're it's welcome. really sweet. You're welcome. Next very, year. very lovely. You're welcome. Next year, I'm going to try to do this on time. No. No, you're early. Uh, you're fine. Here's the thing is that we can segue from your nose warmer to the nose job news of the Jews. The NJNOTJ? The, 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 the NJNOTJ is that our nose job episode w did twice the traffic of our normal episode. So I want to I thank all of you who, who shared it. I want to thank all of those of you in the J Crew who listened to it. I also want to thank the new listeners we're welcoming who discovered us through the nose job episode and probably think this is a podcast about plastic surgery or- We're happy to apply. I mean, there's right. no problem there. Yeah. We'll do whatever you want. But- We're um, here for you. A regular segment of our show is News of the Jews, which this week actually starts off with a nose job um, bit. Uh, Jacqueline, Jacqueline Kent Cook is the daughter from the fourth marriage of Redskins owner mm -hmm. Jack Kent Cook. A marriage, fun fact, that lasted 73 days. Is that right? Yep. <laughs> In the course of which she was conceived. And you may have seen the video online of her um, 
get in an altercation with a Jewish uh, individual. Uh, she was mad because could someone help me with the story here? This is New Year's Eve. Okay, on the once upon a time. In a land far, far away on East 74th Street on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. This is why we don't go there. There was East Side. a beautiful, beautiful princess <laughs> named Jacqueline Ken Cook who had a lot to drink on New Year's Eve. And then standing in line at the coat check for her coat, noticed some horrible, terrible people with hook noses. Big nose. Getting up Jews. and taking a long time to retrieve their coats, at which point the beautiful princess uttered, the magical words that we shall all forever cherish, which were, Stephanie? Hurry up, Jew. Hurry up, Jews. Jews, <laughs> Jews. wow. <laughs> this woman walks to a, a family of, you know, an elderly mother and a couple and their daughters right. at a restaurant on Upper East Side on New Year's Eve. And because they were taking a while to put the coats on, she's like, hurry up, Jews. <laughs> <laughs> which is so funny. Funny. It's like exactly something I wish I could say. Like, hurry up, Jews. Hurry up, Jews. We've probably said that. We've probably said that to and, each other. Yeah, we said that all the time, right before we recorded. But the best thing is that her companion then said to the the girls in an effort to smooth things over, like, congratulations on your bat mitzvahs. Oh, you that's interesting. You read that as he was trying to smooth things over. And no, you I saw read that as I think he was, I was trying was to joking. be anti-Semitic. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I was using the my, sarcasm. My ar- irony meter oh. is broken <laughs> congratulations on your bat mitzvah like i love that what's so interesting is it's new york so of course first of all she has judar i mean she picked out these were these were not side lock wearing yarmulke wearing this, Dude, was, this a, was like the freaking upper east <laughs> side like a really nice restaurant and right she's like, like how is this happening those still? look like jews and then then the boyfriend is like and girls with your bat mitzvah i mean this is like proves, you know, the novelist Howard Jacobson's point that anti-Semites actually think about Jews, Judaism more than Jews do. Right? Like, like you look like you've recently had your rite of passage in the Jewish community. You've been called to the Torah. I saw your oofruf, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much work to be but done anyway, here. This, I honestly, this story upsets me. I know it's like funny and whatever. It's like... It's gross. It's the idea that you're at like a, a restaurant in twenty, literally in 2018, and someone comes up to you, and you're in New York, a place where you think this doesn't happen, and you're on the Upper East Side, and you're like, all of a sudden, your family is getting called Jews in the bad way. I will say it again and again. This is why we stay on the Upper West, West Side. <laughs> when the this only people telling Jews to hurry up are other, other Jews, Jews in line at Barney Greengrass. And, exactly. And literally. you're either at Barney Greengrass or you're at Zabar's. You're like, hurry up, Jews. They're running out of the cheese I like. <laughs> So after she says, hurry up, Jews, they sort of stumble out onto the street where uh, Miss Miss Cook, uh, Miss Kent Cook, Miss, uh, Miss Kent know. Cook, JKC, proceeds, uh, JKC uh, proceeds to wave. This is my favorite part of the story. Her $300 purse made out of glass. It's called a clutch. Because why the... She hit the guy in the head. Lippity. Which is the whole point. Like she right. got arrested for this. Upside the head. And there's a picture of him bleeding. Right. And then when his wife uh, charged to his aid, uh, she said, why don't you get a nose job? Yeah, that's right. I knew there was a nose she job. She was like link. really going for the whole trifecta. <laughs> the bat mitzvahs, the nose jobs. Hurry up, Jews. People who live in uh, glass clutches shouldn't throw them around. Also in nose job news, marvelous Mrs. Maisel whose mother in episode one says that it's okay if the infant daughter's nose is big because that can be fixed someday. Wins Golden Globes for Best Actress, Comedy, or Musical, um, Rachel Brosnahan, and for Best Comedy or Musical. Um, now, my the only point I have to make about this- Wait, first a- can we talk about the awards? Because Amy Sherman-Palladino got up there and was like, oi, my Spanx, the show creator. <laughs> and you're like, yes, exactly. Of Represent. course, that, like, that's the only so real moment of the night. So 
is this our opportunity to just break it down on Mrs. Maisel? Did, yeah. did, our, our Facebook group has been exploding in Mrs. Maisel conversation. We have now all watched. We've now all watched all eight episodes. Yeah, I watched it like right the day it came out. The Amazon Prime series, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Um, I thought it was good. I, the anachronisms drove me insane. The fact that she talks like a Valley Girl circa 1984. I got this. It it's it's drives me insane. Um, Jordan Horn Gordon pointed out. I think she was going to point out on Facebook. Also, why are they wearing talises on Friday night? They didn't even get the Jewish stuff right. It's like, could they have spent a little money? We will volunteer our efforts next year to read this show for 1958 language and Jewish correctness. I, I do care because it broke the spell for me. It's not. It's I don't care on some sort of high minded moral. They owed it to the 50s to get it right. I just what's magnetic and and captivating about Mad Men is nothing breaks the spell. And this, I thought, wait a second. She sounds like you know. Marissa from 11th grade. And there was a Marissa from the OC. I was going to name a particular Marissa I went to high school with, but then I decided not to. I, I love that Marissa. I really like the show. I do too. I think it was, I, to me, it was just like really entertaining and I and I enjoyed it. And I'm not, I yeah, I get, yeah, there were things that I was like, oh, this is weird. Like her butcher sells pork. But I'm also just like, it's a TV show. And I actually, there are, I want to find pleasure in it. And I don't want to, I don't want to nitpick it because there's enough things. There's enough things right now that are just like, Super bad. I will begin. Let me have Ma- Mrs. Maisel. I, I will begin with uh, with a simple statement. Tony Shalhoub. He was great. Who ought to be in absolutely everything, every, every, everything, every, everything Mr. in the world. Mr. Monk Maisel. Yeah. Just, just so great. And what we're what all an o- Abe. And we're all okay with Rachel Brosnahan, non-Jewish, playing Midge Maisel. I'm okay with it. Some of our listeners are not. They say, look, if it's good for the goose, if Native Americans have to be cast in Native American roles now- why don't Jewish? Why don't Jewesses get Jewish roles? I think there's a very different situation with the depiction of Native Americans in TV and movies, and I actually think Jewish people probably don't have the same issue, like the representation issue. I don't. It doesn't bother me. To me, I'm like, it would be weird if it was like, and this is our all Jewish cast for our Jewish show that is now like a niche show. That I don't know. To me, I'm just like, Rachel Brosnahan did such a good job a good in job. in just inhabiting this character, Here, and and thing, I don't though. actually think it matters. If she's Jewish or not, it, that to me we're past. We should be past that as a community. I obviously agree with you. I think we should be past that as a species, which is why all that talk about. But why don't we have transgendered actors play transgender characters and blind actors play blind characters? Like to me, that is so patently silly. It's fucking acting. The whole point is you're pretending to be someone you're not. It's it's of a kind with a sort of you can only write a novel about things that explicitly happen to you. It's so stupid and petty and really kind of you know Stalinist and destroys. All vestiges Tell of culture. How you really think. However, however, uh, if you're going to go down that path and if you're going to claim that as a rule, it should absolutely apply to Jews as well. And here's the thing: Rachel Bosnahan was amazing, and I, it really doesn't bother me. I'm so happy, and I think I don't really, honestly, can't imagine anyone doing a better job at this character. But actually, there haven't been a lot of Jewish women actors portraying Jewish women characters because. For decades, the people writing these roles were Jewish men, and the spouses they wrote for themselves were, you know, Helen Hunt and Mad About You and, like, gorgeous blondes who played up— The blonde know, of the week on Seinfeld. That's right. Who Jerry's uh, dating. Yeah, that's, that's a fair right. point. And so if we finally have this, like, starring role uh, for a Jewish woman, it would have been nice to have a Jewish actress. However, Rachel Bosnahan— Kate Spade's, See, Kate Spade's niece. <laughs> awesome. Look, but you're t- what about women-made shows? What about the nanny, Fran Drescher, in like this iconic Jewish role? Okay, what yeah, about, name, okay, name, name another. Two more. Name two more. Barbara Streisand. At, on a TV show. Oh, name, we're talking about TV? More. In the yes. last 40 years. 
And then two more TV characters who are strong, strong Jewish, leading Jewish. I'll give you one. I'll give you one. Andrea Zuckerman on 90210. Again, we have to go back 25 years, but I'll give you that one. We take that one, was a ter- No, a tertiary character, not even a secondary character. She's secondary. No. She's, oh, she's, she dates Brandon for a little, like, She never dates Brandon. They don't date. She's they the only date. one who gets smacked date. around. Okay, name one more. Well, now I'm blank. Now, let me think about this. I'll get back to you. Um, I, I, I like Liel's point bum, 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 um, So bum. you're saying we have a representation issue? Uh, for Jewish women? Right on. I think that's true. Uh, you know where else we have a representation issue? Alabama, where the where the, <laughs> where the where the Jews are playing Gentiles. Um, remember that story about Kayla Moore, wife of vanquished Alabama Senate candidate no, Roy Moore? No, we have forgotten all about it. And who said who said one of our lawyers is a Jew? Was that the line? One of it our was literally some of our friends yeah. are Jewish. Our, yep. Some of our best closest friends. That's are right. Jews. And and she said they, Jews. they fellowship with them. And so it turns out that their Jewish lawyer is in fact a Christian. Um, it's, <laughs> <laughs> so the, the Jewish new, lawyer is Kamafudi. No, no, no. First. Uh, Christian. First, the Jewish lawyer that people thought it was is actually like a Doug Jones supporter, supporter and friend. Right. And so everyone was like, so he was like, I'm not their Jewish lawyer right. friend. So they found a di- everyone found a different Jewish lawyer that they who was who they were presumably discussing. So they now think it's Martin Wisnotsky who works for Roy Moore's foundation that supports erecting Ten Commandment monuments. Erecting things. Yeah. And uh, Martin Wisnotsky uh, grew up Jewish, uh, conservative shul, apparently, bar mitzvah, and then went on a journey in midlife, was briefly a Mormon, then became an evangelical Christian, spent some time in prison for protesting outside abortion clinics, uh, and and now is working down there in Alabama for for the Moors, where he is their Jewish friend, except he's an evangelical Christian, which raises the whole question of whether people who are ancestrally and halakhically Jewish but are now followers of Jesus should be going around calling themselves Jews or their friends, the Moors, should be toting them out as the token Jews in their social circle. Um, well, I think for the Moors, it's like baby steps, right? <laughs> like you can't go full Jew right on. It'd be like, you know what? How about we try the Jew for Jesus? Right. And then slowly, slowly we but, will. But there's a difference, I think, because he was someone who was raised uh, Jewish and now believes in, like, believes in Christ and he's an evangelical. Like that to me is different than like a Jew for Jesus. I don't know that he necessarily... Oh, I How thought he, he was a Jew for Jesus. Well, no, let me be clear. He's, so Jews for Jesus is a particular sect of Messianic Jews, but he is he's not one of them, but he is a Messianic... I mean... Or is he an evangelical Christian now? What, what's the distinction you're making, Stephanie? Oh, I, I get that Has he converted to Christianity? Yeah. Yes. I mean, he was baptized, for but then, sure. Then he... Then, then the idea that No, no, no. Because if you were raised Jewish and then now participate in another faith, you could say, I'm an evangelical Christian. There's a difference between someone being like, I, I'm a Jew still... Like I don't know it's whether he, I mean, it's whether just he, what he identifies as a Jew who now believes right. in Jesus. Like that to me. Well, is, his is, friends is, identify him that way. The Moors think of him as their. What little... if he's like, guys, I'm not Jewish anymore. <laughs> Stop calling me that. Did, anyway. Didn't you pay attention to the trade? Like, <laughs> I went to another team, man. It was three years ago. I don't play they for that. Still call me a Jew. Come on, man. A Jew, but it does make sense that they fellowship together. Oh, they fellowship. They fellowship. The they that fellowship guy would fellowship. <laughs> fellowship hard with Martin Wisnowski. I'm an Alabama man, no bigger than a mite. Work from dawn to late at night. Working in the fields and planting the corn. I love Alabama since I was born. I'm an Alabama man. I'm an Alabama man. All right, our first Jew this week is Rabbi Joseph Hampel. 
I was in West Virginia last October and I was having lunch with my host from the University of West Virginia and we were in a, a local restaurant and she said, oh, there's the rabbi. So I went, I visited the rabbi at his at his temple later that afternoon during a, a break in my proceedings. I took out my iPhone, I hit record and I asked him to tell me his story and his story was awesome. Okay, so I'm Rabbi Joe Hampel. I'm a Tree of Life congregation in Morgantown, West Virginia. I've been here five years. It's a wonderful congregation. I'm a midlife career change rabbi. I had a corporate career, and then I had a midlife crisis and went off to rabbinical school at the age of 47. You know, in retrospect, the red convertible would have been cheaper, but um, uh, but it's been the adventure of a lifetime to become a rabbi and to be in West Virginia. I barely knew where West Virginia was until I applied for this job. I thought it was down near Alabama, but it turns out it's up near Pennsylvania. They must have moved it. So. So it used to be near Alabama. Yeah, yeah it was it was it was part of Mobile actually, yeah, that's what I where thought. my uncles live. So uh, okay, so tell me what you were doing and and tell me about. I want to hear about the midlife crisis. I was a systems analyst at Wells Fargo Bank in San Francisco for twenty years. You know the Dilbert comic strip. Yes, that was my life. So twenty years of it, you know, it was decent pay, interesting people, and pleasant offices, a fun life. But I had a sense of no impact. I wanted to make a difference. So um, uh, on my 47th birthday, my father of blessed memory called me from New York. He says, are you happy at the bank? I said, not really. He said, what would you like to do? I said, I think I'd like to go to rabbinical school. I was very involved in my uh, hip little down to inner city synagogue there in San Francisco, Sharzahov. I was there for you know, a decade plus uh, as a major player in the synagogue. So I said, I think I'd like to go to rabbinical school. He said, why don't you do it? I said, I'd do it if I was younger. He said, you are younger. <laughs> so at 47, I applied to Hebrew Union College and I flew off to Jerusalem to become a rabbi. And uh, I went to LA, which I'd never lived in LA before, but I'd lived in San Francisco uh, for 20 plus years. And so I figured LA wouldn't be as a shock to the system. And in fact, I love it. Well, I was so busy writing term papers, I hardly knew what city I was in. But it, it, there was a time lag between my getting ordained and my getting a job. So in that few months of lag, I got to actually explore the city. And it's a wonderful, fascinating city. I really liked it. But um, uh, so then I got the uh, finally a uh, prison chaplaincy. I applied for prison chaplaincies all over California, and the one I got was at Pelican Bay, which is up at the tippy top of California. You can spit from there into Oregon. And it's maximum security. Of course, they put maximum security prisons out in the middle of nowhere, because it's, uh, there's no, people don't have to feel anxious that there's a maximum security prison in their neighborhood. Uh, Crescent City, California, it's called. So it's very scenic, mountains and ocean and redwoods and fog but there's nothing there, nothing. You never saw so much nothing in all your life. We were so far out in the country, our zip code was E-I-E-I-O. <laughs> so I did that for a couple of years, and I'll say this for inmates, they're a very appreciative congregation. No matter what you do, it's probably the high point of their day. And they'll read anything you give them. They have a lot of time on their hands. You know, in this congregation, I could give everyone a book about the Talmud. No one would ever read it. In prison, they'll all read it. What else have they got to do? It's very rewarding for a rabbi. 
Were there were there Jews? Well, there were hardly any real Jews. There were thirty two hundred inmates, but they're bank robbers and drug kingpins. How many Jew? <laughs> um, you know, you find Jews in a white collar prison. Uh, uh, you know, a minimum security. No, there were hardly any real Jews. But you have to understand that religion's the only hobby allowed in prison. So naturally, they make the most of it. There are religions in prison that you never heard of before. <laughs> Everybody, you know, it'd be like they'd all been through 50 different religions. It'd be like, oh, I hear we have a rabbi now, Rocky. Let's try Judaism. And, you know, more and more inmates in my services every week. Now, at Pelican Bay, fully half the population is in solitary. So they couldn't come to me. I had to go to them. But of those who were uh, in, you know, cell blocks where you're allowed to do some activity, they could come to the chapel. So in the A chapel, I had services on Wednesday, and in the B, the B chapel on Thursday or whatever it was, the A yard and B yard. Um, and uh, they were fascinated. Um, uh, and, they were, of course, there's lots of other, but there's Protestant, there's Catholic and Muslim. But I, you know, helped all of the different religious groups coordinate their activities. There didn't happen to be an imam at Pelican Bay when I was there. So I had to coordinate Ramadan. Like, what do I know about Ramadan? I Googled it. Um, uh, but and we had Buddhists who came and volunteered. We had Jehovah's Witnesses who came and volunteered, Seventh-day Adventists. Um, the Seventh-day Adventist volunteer chaplain, he really knew his Bible. And it was very convenient because people would ask me, guards or inmates, would ask me all the time, you know, Rabbi, I've been, something about the Old Testament has been confusing me. Did Bathsheba ever repent? You know, I would go and ask the Seventh-day, they assumed a rabbi would know. I would go and ask the Seventh-day Adventist chaplain, and he'd give me the answer, and I'd take it back to them. And they were thrilled. Oh, thank you so much, rabbi. So I learned how to work that. Um, and I had every Bible-thumping fundamentalist in the county in and out of my office every day. They all volunteered in the prison. They'd say to me, Rabbi, what if you're wrong? What if you go up to die and you go up to the heavenly judgment and Jesus is standing there? So I said, what if we die and go up to the heavenly judgment and Mohammed or Buddha is standing there? And they said, oh, Rabbi, that's not the same thing at all. Those religions are not the fulfillment of Judaism. Of course, they didn't get that, to me, Christianity isn't the fulfillment of Judaism either. It's on the same level as Islam and Buddhism. But so it was quite an experience working at the prison. But needless to say, a, a prison is a stressful place to work. And not only because of the danger, but also because as a byproduct of the danger, everyone's in a bad mood all the time. You don't get through the day without being chewed out for something that wasn't your fault. You have to search really hard for that inner source of infinite peace because it sure is not in your environment. It wasn't a place that I really wanted to live. I mean, it's beautiful out there in the redwoods and on the craggy coastline and that. But there, there was nothing, nothing there. You couldn't buy a sport jacket within an hour's drive. You know, the the the, the KFC closed for lack of customers. There, there were no, there wasn't one parking meter in our whole county. You think you wouldn't miss parking meters, but for some reason you do. So the, you know, I had continued to apply for jobs uh, uh, at Main Street, you know, normal synagogue-type jobs, and eventually one came through. You know, I was old and gay. I wasn't the most desirable uh, uh, rabbi for people to hire, but this was a college town. A couple of the people on the selection committee had gay family members, and they insisted that I be given a chance. They liked me, and the rest is history. And, you know, some people left when I was hired, and they're entitled to their opinion. Some of them have come back, and some not.
left because you were gay? I guess so. Oh, well. Um, what's, what's the hardest thing about being here and what's the best? Um, well, the hardest thing about being clergy, I mean, the essence of being clergy is being nice to everyone, whether you like them or not. That's much harder than parsing the scriptures and much more important. No one would know or care if I confused Abraham with Moses, but they'll sure know if I confuse Harry Klein with Howie Stein. I'll never live it down. Um, I'm not even particularly an extroverted person, but this is a, a profession where you have to be extroverted or fake it 24-7. It takes a lot out of me. You know, if you're, if you're in the galoshes business, your raw material is rubber, and if you're in the paperclip business, your raw material is steel. But if you're in the religion business, your raw material is your own personality. You're constantly processing yourself into your product. There's something, there's something, um, uh, uh, um, cannibalizing. Thank you. There's something cannibalistic about it. Um, but, but that's what the job is, you know. And uh, I mean, I, I always liked um, speaking, singing, reading, writing, teaching, uh, uh, fiddling with foreign languages. Those are the things you do as a rabbi. But I didn't have the confidence to, let's say, write anything. Who'd want to read something I wrote? I didn't have the confidence to speak publicly. Who'd want to hear what I had to say? Unless it's about Judaism. If it's about Judaism, I have the confidence that maybe someone will be interested. Because everyone's trying to access their Judaism and they don't know how. They don't know how to connect. It seems so complicated and so uh, intimidating. Uh, they wish they could find a way to be uh, uh, comfortable with Judaism. And that's what I try to provide. That's the, uh, I found a need and filled it. As I say, I had a pretty secular upbringing. I mean, we had a mezuzah on the door and a facetious trephidic Passover Seder once a year, and that was about it. Nobody in my family ever went to synagogue if they could help it, even at the high holidays. But there was a discourse of, in my home about the Jewish experience and the Jewish predicament and the Jewish celebrities and Jewish contributions to civilization and all that. And, 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 and the, to grow up a, a secular Jew in New York 50 years ago and to grow up a secular Jew in West Virginia today, it's a whole different kind of secular. You know what I mean? The kids here have never heard of Habanagila. You know, it's a, it's very different. Um, but, um, uh, you know, so I had a little Jewish summer camp, a smidgen of Hebrew school and a, a sort of minimalist bar mitzvah. My mother served shrimp salad at the reception. And then I had a 20-year vacation from even that minimal Judaism. But in my 30s in San Francisco, um, all of my, a lot of my friends were experimenting with something spiritual or religious, you know, the area. Uh, uh, 80s, 90s. Everybody was going to the Zen Center or the Yoga Institute, or they were serious Christians, or they were serious something, uh, you know, into the New Age, this and that. And I, I was always saying to people, well, I have a religion. I'm Jewish. Well, I have a religion, too. I'm Jewish. And after saying that a thousand times, I finally decided to put my money where my mouth was. I was going to sign up for another six months of the bowling league and it was on Friday night and I said to myself, you know, maybe I'll skip the bowling league and try the synagogue. Um, 
gay synagogues, the heyday of gay synagogues was the 80s because straight synagogues didn't want to be doing another AIDS funeral every year, every week, um, uh, uh, every two days. Um, so gay synagogues flourished during that period of time. Then by the 90s, as the AIDS crisis waned and as straight synagogues became more accepting, now it's not so clear that gay congregations per se are really necessary. Either they're having to broaden their base and bring in a lot of straight people, or they're merging with straight congregations, or they're fading away. Uh, and in a place like San Francisco, where, you know, as you know, San Francisco, now you have to be a, a techie zillionaire to live there at all. I, I don't know what Shar Zahab is going to do. Was it a gay synagogue? Yeah. yeah. What, um, is that a loss? I mean, do you have the sort of the way they talk about the loss of gay bookstores with this kind of nostalgia? You know, well, I don't know. I mean, that's that's the price you pay for integration. You know, you know, you no longer have the ethnic neighborhood. Um, uh, the same for any minority, of course. Um, so, you know, as Joni Mitchell would say, something's lost and something's gained. <laughs> I had a professor in uh, in a rabbinical school who was always talking about the ethnic neighborhood and the multi generational family under one roof and what a loss it is that we don't have that anymore. Um, it is what it is. Uh, final question: Do you, have you had a favorite moment as a rabbi, or is, is there a kind of moment? Is there something you just love doing? Something a part of your job that you just love so much? Well, I guess I love, as I say, making it accessible to somebody who never had a way in before, you know. And, and again, this is something I feel very strongly about, and maybe it's because I was in the Bay Area for 24 years, but it's not that Jews don't have a spiritual side. Jews totally have a spiritual side. You go down to the Zen Center, the Yoga Institute, or the Lakota Sweat Lodge, and everyone's named Shapiro. It's not that Jews aren't spiritual, it's that... Judaism isn't meeting their spiritual needs. And why not? It's such a complicated religion. Nowadays, people prefer something simple. It's an embarrassingly ethnic religion. Nowadays, people prefer something universal. And generations of pompous, self-important rabbis have damaged the brand almost beyond repair. That's what we're up against. But what I love is when somebody suddenly feels empowered to act on their Jewishness, you know, whether it's a bar mitzvah kid, bat mitzvah kid, whether it's a wedding couple, you know, they didn't even think they were going to have a rabbi at all, and suddenly they're not only having a rabbi, but they're enjoying the service, because I do it, you know, light and, and uh, with some humor and some uh, atmosphere of celebration. I personalize it for the couple. Um, you know, I write I quiz them all about themselves and what brings them together as a couple, and then I, I uh, insinuate that into the liturgy, and so they, they love that. Um, making a, even a funeral, anything you can, any way that you can make Judaism personal for people, I just love the opportunity to do that. I did five weddings in the last few months, each one different. Two of them were interfaith couples. Uh, I customize every wedding for the couple, and they love it so much. I mean, it's it's not a one-size-fits-all product. Um, that's very rewarding. And, you know, I taught at the Lifelong Learning Institute this morning, a mixed class, Jews and non-Jews. 
they loved it. You know, I'm packaging Judaism for them in a way that's interesting, colorful, fun. I sang a Yiddish song and, you know, a couple of people in the class knew Yiddish and laughed and sang along. And everybody else, uh, they're experiencing something that they never thought they were going to see. I'm opening up Jewish text to them, you know, some midrash, something funny from the Talmud they never knew. One of the students once told me, um, uh, she said, um, you should call your class the lighter side of the Old Testament. She said, you know, we learned in church that the Old Testament was the gloom and doom before Jesus came, but you've shown us the, the fun stuff. That's what we need to focus on. What was the Yiddish song you sang? Rozhinkas mit Mandelin. How does that one go? Raisins and Almonds. Okay, sing it for us. Yeah, I've got the, I've got the words in the other room. <laughs> oh, I got it in my... So it's a lullaby from the old country, and it's about baby growing up to be a businessman, which you likely wouldn't find in any, every culture has lullabies and nursery rhymes, but growing up to be a businessman, there's something to sing about, right? Until Yedalus Vigala, Steta Chlorvice Tigala, Dos Tigala is good an Handlan, Dos Vetzein Dein Baruf, Rojin Kiss mit Mandlan, Schlofsche Yedala Schlof, Eilululu Schlofsche Yedala Schlof. So that's the meaning is, uh, under Yidla's cradle, there stands a snow-white goat. The goat has been on a business trip. This will be your calling, too. You will deal in raisins and almonds. Sleep, Yidla, sleep. <laughs> All right, thank you. This is amazing. We're going to put this on our show. Cool. Thank you. That was Rabbi Joe Hampel, recorded at the Tree of Life Congregation in Morgantown, West Virginia, in October 2017. to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. 
to the mailbox. This week, some voice memos. We're really encouraging you guys to call into the listener line and leave your mail that way because because we kind of want to hear your voice. I think it's fun. I think it's fun to hear you guys on the air. The number is 914-570-4869. Again, 914-570-4869. How we got a Westchester area code for this? I don't know. The Google gods yeah. answered. The Google gods. They're like, you sound like you're from Scarsdale. <laughs> it's like, these are Jews. <laughs> like, I wish. <laughs> All right. Uh, first letter, we go to Sam Dubin. Hey, J. Crew. Sam Dubin here from West Bloomfield, Michigan. Uh, loved the show this week, especially the part of hearing uh, about the great Jewish geography skills uh, on unorthodox, and I was thinking to take it one step further. How cool would it be if you guys uh, set people up uh, on dates? Uh, I live here in Detroit, and being a gay 25-year-old man myself, it's not the easiest. I said 25. I just turned 26. 26-year-old, uh, not the easiest finding people. So folks in the LGBT community, I set up uh, an initiative here called Next Gen Pride, which creates a space for young LGBT Jews, and still, I'm yet without a significant other. So it'd be cool if you guys had a stake uh, in that. All right, thanks. Bye bye. I don't know, guys. What do you think? He wants us to set people up on dates. Do we have those chops? I feel like we could do it in the Facebook group. There could be like a little I think that's, DIY. I think that's yenta. all the Facebook group would soon become. It's sort of like my <laughs> I mean, son. It's sort of becoming so that already. Nice. He lives in Detroit. He's really a lovely young man. Here's the reason I wanted to play that letter, because I was hoping we would get to the Facebook group. I, what I think is people should basically post and be like, hey, I'm single. I live in Detroit. I'm gay. I'm, I like I like Pokemon Go and uh, Star Wars. Love me. This is not to be like, oh, I'll, you're gay, you're gay. You should be together. But someone in the group has already said that he's looking for a nice Jewish husband, but he's in New York. So Ooh, we could, we could, we so could we, there's, yeah, we're gonna get. Well, it'll we could like geotat locate it. I think we're gonna. This Here's is good. the thing, though. Yeah. We this is the unorthodox uh, promise of of you know seal of excellence. If you on our Facebook group uh, bring about the shidduch <laughs> of two people, you will receive a very special prize. A very special from prize. Us. Yep. To the next letter. Hurry up, Juice. Find love. Hi, unorthodox. Uh, Mazel tov on the nose job episode. I thought it was a really, um, really excellent production uh, and and really good reporting. The one topic I wish you would have covered uh, to add some perspective was the influence of the male gaze over people's perceived need for nose jobs to fit in. Um, but otherwise, I, I really did think it was one of the best podcasts that you guys have done. Uh, kudos. This is Lauren from Brooklyn. Um, thanks. Bye. Lauren from Brooklyn calling us out on insufficient attention to the male gaze. Although, as as the representative of the male gaze, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I don't mean to be crude, but I'm pretty sure men don't, you know, usually look at noses first. No, 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 no. She's absolutely right that there is a psychological... The, the basically, we're, the beauty standards in this country are set by men. And I imagine in Germany, in Berlin, when that first nose job happened, it, it's there's a way in which these are all responses to societal pressures. And if you think about who is running society, like mm-hmm. there, there's a way in which, yeah, these are all responses to the, patri- the patriarchy. So we're going to dismantle See, the patriarchy in 2018. I, no, I'm sorry. I'm not buying that at all when it comes to nose jobs. At all. You know how women have this thing when they're like, oh, she's so pretty. And then men would look at the woman that the women thought were pretty, be like, I absolutely don't get why anyone would say that. D- do you know of which I speak? Is just, that are you, total... I think you're literally defining the male gaze right now. 
no, no I, I'm defining the opposite of it. I'm, I'm saying that there are very specific beauty standards that are male-dominated, which is why we have, like say, figures, say like women's Barbie. figures. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. where a man would go, be like, yeah. oh, she has to look like this. But a nose? I, I, look, no. can I split the difference here? Obviously, the, the, the beauty industry is run largely, though not exclusively, by men, and it perpetuates all sorts of standards. You don't see big, stereotypically Jewish noses or Semitic noses or very wide African noses on the runways. And, and that's, I think, the fault of male designers and what they're creating. That said, I would agree with Liel that in the locker room, the, the proverbial locker room, the talk is not about women's noses. As I've made the point a million times, it's not about their hair. The whole, like, we must straighten yeah. our hair thing, I've never heard Nobody a man can. say her hair is too curly. Yep. But the whole idea of wanting to look, I mean, I guess these maybe these specific things are are perhaps not high on the list, but I think that, the, that Lauren's right in that there is, it's all coming from a, uh, this idea that you need to fit it. I mean, look, the standards are yeah, being set, and and it's yes, coming maybe from not... the fact that you want to be attractive to other people. Like, uh, how many things do men have? Think, like, I oh my god, I need six packs so that willfully... women would find me hot. Is that the female gaze? I mean, come on, we are a species that survives by mating. That happens because other people find us attractive, and therefore we want to fit into societal are stereotypes you, that are, are often you... fucked up. Am I? You were going to say mansplaining, weren't I, you? No, no, no. I'm going to say, no, no, no. I wanted to say something better. Are you evolution-splaining me? I'm evolution-splaining. Are you Darwin-splaining me? Yeah. To the next one. Ape-splaining. Lauren. Ape-splaining. That's what I'm doing. Lauren, I'm basically for, an ape. Lauren, thanks for writing in. All right. One more letter. Hey, J. Crew. This is Stacy from Atlanta, Georgia. In regards to non-Jews giving their kids ethnically Jewish names, what I find way more interesting is the preponderance of Jews who give their kids extremely non-Jewish sounding names. As examples, I personally know kids, Jewish kids, with names like Blaine, Finn, Aiden, Cash, Brianna, and Piper. That's my personal favorite head scratcher for a Jew. Almost all have very Jewish last names as well, from Schwartz to Greenberg to Stein. While I'm a big believer that parents should name their kids whatever they want to, I've often wondered why droves of Jewish parents are choosing to give their kids names that feel like the opposite of Jewish. Shalom, friends. All right. First of all, thank you so much for calling Stacy from Atlanta. However, I disagree. I am not a believer in parents being able to name their kids whatever they want to. Oh, totally. I think kids should not parents should not give kids stupid names. Uh, in this, I'm from the Tim Oppenheimer School. My father always said, life is difficult enough without a name like Cashlin. And that's why you name kids Mark, Daniel, Jonathan, and Rachel. You know how and I, said- I just and wait, 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 wait. I'm on a tear here. Hold yeah. on, hold on. I'm with you. So, and the, the Joanne Oppenheimer School is she is always baffled by Jews whose kids are named Christopher or Christine. She's like, they don't know, do they? That that actually just means like Christ there lover. There are Jews like, named Christina? There are Jews named Christine, Christina, Christopher. And, it, and look- that don't, surprises me. Don't give your kids uber, uber Christian names because it looks like you're trying to pass or it just looks you just look I- ignorant, right? And don't give your kids names like Brianna and Cashlin and Madison and Tiffany. And just just don't. Just find a name with some heritage unless you're naming them after Grandma Tiffany, which is coming down the pike in about another 20 years. And then it's family heritage. Just don't I, guys, do it. A hundred percent. You guys sound like judgy. No, McJudgy, we are a hundred percent. This is the flow. <laughs> that's that's McJudgy. No, 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 we care. This is, this is the naming flow chart. Ready? Do you have a baby? Yes. Mazel tov. 
Uh, and and Mazel to all the people who are Has the babies. name appeared in the Bible? Yes? <laughs> right. Awesome. You awesome. can name your kid that. No, it hasn't. Has, would the name that you're now giving your child inspire a Cossack to like try and plunder and or rape that person? If the answer is yes, it's an approved name. Good it's name. It's a Shlomo or Moti. So if you're or, not great, naming your child something that a Cossack would That's right. If it's a biblical king for, then you're selling or, out. Then you're or, or victim of pogrom, then it's a great Jewish name. Right. Shlomo or Gittel. That's right. That's right. Now, where does Liel fit into that? <laughs> See, Lyle. the 70s. The fucking 70s. Yeah. This is, this we, is look, where you get in trouble. We all got 70s, right? Liel got 70s in an Israeli way. Stephanie and I got 70s in an American way. I don't um, think I got 70s because I don't know uh, much about the 70s. Right. But I think your you sister got, got a little 70s. Francesca, no, Francesca no. was kind of avant. Look, uh, the, the point is, so one no, because you would say because my my sister my sister's name is Francesca. That is probably What's an her Italian name, name Caroline. Yeah, no, that's well, she got like a Princess Caroline. That's a pretty classy name. Your parents were kind of out of time with Francesca but, Caroline. But, they, but by your own argument, that we wouldn't be allowed to do that because there's no. I mean, there was correct. an F somewhere. Correct. That's correct. After, correct. So, that's correct. No, I mean Francesca no, you have to fight is now is now. Hava. I just want to I just want to tell you a story. So about four years ago. One of my kids, I think it was Rebecca, was in first grade or kindergarten or something with, with uh, a, a child with a, a name she'd not heard of. And she came home one day and she said, Daddy, is Cashlin a name? It's like, nope. And I had this really, it was like an existential question. And I was like, well, somebody's been named it, but is it a name? And I just looked at her and I said, well, <laughs> nope, sort of. And she looked at me and she, because she's a genius, she got exactly what I was saying. She's like, got it, Dad. I've got it. <laughs> like she knew someone was named it. But she knew it wasn't. No, I a want name. names to get more ridiculous. I want more like Park Slope babies named like Apple. Park Ranger and Chipotle. stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. You know how <laughs> you Iceland, want a nephew Chipotle? I would love that. <laughs> you know how Iceland only has like seven or nine Ashland or Iceland. Uh, Ashland, <laughs> the country Ashland, yeah, uh, only has like seven or nine like yeah. approved names. Yeah, yeah, like I absolutely think we should do the same. I'm kind of with you. Should be like a registry. No, but here's the good news: the oh, Bible. Wait, a big. registry like, of Jewish names. Yes, would you like? Yes, I just want to know where we're going towards. Would you like a Jacob? A David, right, or a Chayamushka? Like that's, these are the three options that's, that's, that you have. I'm totally, I'm basically with you there. And like Nachamendel, Chayamushka, and you, if you can you, have a David just for sports. If when you play lacrosse or field hockey, you need to take a, a sports name of Ashley or Cashlin or Kevin. That's, that's what middle names are for. <laughs> Go Cashlin, you know. The listener line is amazing. Uh, call in your letters to 914-570-4869. That's 914-570-Israel-Woodstock. Uh, but we also still take written letters, uh, preferably emailed to unorthodox at talentmag.com. We also take carrier pigeon and uh, telex and fax and whatever. Uh, but it's 914-570-Israel-Woodstock. We're here with David Shevin and Warren Bird of the Afro-Semitic Experience. Welcome, guys. Hello. Yeah, hey. Will you introduce yourselves? Tell us what, what you play, what you do. Start oh, with man. you, Warren. Why you should start, man. Yeah, you, know. you should start, man. Well, let's see. Well, I'm Warren Bird, and I'm from Hartford, Connecticut, and I play piano. I also play some keyboards, and I sing a lot lately. Um, people found out I actually have a voice, and so they've been making me sing. Um, I like usually keeping my mouth shut and playing. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, man. It's like We played together for almost ooh, 15, 16 years before you sang a single note. I, I noticed that, by the way. There's now some video clips of you singing and... You didn't used to sing as, and I've seen you sing live. You didn't used to sing as much. Yeah, there's a couple of people responsible for getting me to open my mouth more. 
<laughs> yeah, he's one of them. But uh, there's one key person who, mm-hmm. whose name I won't mention now, but her initials are Saskia Laroe. But <laughs> uh, yeah, she heard I could sing, and she said, "No, you must sing. You must sing more." And she practically held a gun to my head and made mm-hmm. me sing more. So we got pianist and singer Warren Bird and and composer and, and composer. And, don't forget and arranger. Yeah, I, and who I are write you? Stuff. I'm David Shevin. I play the bass. And I should say that um, Afro-Semitic Experience is is a Connecticut-based. It's global, but it's Connecticut-based. And so <laughs> I've seen you guys play any number of times. And um, I was excited when you. Re- it turns out you listen to the show. I and do, so, and so I do, and so you reached out, and I was like, "Yeah, how come we haven't had you guys on yet?" And here we yeah, are. Yeah, I asked myself the same question. <laughs> <laughs> All right, most Dude. important lead-up question: uh, Are there particular stereotypes uh, that may may be true that go with the type of instrument you play and how it reflects in your personality? So, bass players are chill. Okay, and <laughs> piano players are <laughs> gay. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So, no, tell only, us, only the best piano players are gay. Let's 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 keep that clear. Okay. Oh, okay. So that right. must be terrible, huh? I'm not saying. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> so, okay. So, Afro-Semitic experience. Tell us what you guys do. What is the Afro-Semitic experience? Well, I think the answer is in the name of the band. You know, we are the Afro-Semitic experience. Whatever you imagine that to be, we have probably been that. I imagine it to be two traditions that are probably, two musical traditions that are probably more intertwined than most people realize. Sure, we're that. You're that? Why not? And, and, and so, and so as, as we say in the jazz community, let's riff on that. So are we talking kind <laughs> of type of, of, of music that is, that is born out of, out of spirituals, out of out of blues, out of suffering, out of liturgical music. Yeah, we can say all that. We can say Sometimes. a lot of things. I think one of the things you have to understand is that there's always been like this sort of, um, well, it's a stereotype once again, but there's been a business side and then an artistic side, but it's actually been a lot more intertwined than we all understand. I mean, if you look at all the fine print mm. of the history and of the past. Um, you mean people thought Jews ran the business and blacks played Sometimes, yeah. sometimes, sometimes Jews, like and Jews ripped them off. Jews had well, <laughs> well now, let, you know that that's another stereotype that we can explore, but we have to be honest and just say that there was a lot more exchanging going on and borrowing on both sides as well. I call it mutual exploitation. That's right. I mean, I can't get a gig unless I get some guy to help help hook it up, and I can't get a guy a gig unless I can pay my own rent. Was that, so, by the way, the other name you were considering for the band, mutual exploitation? <laughs> Because that sounds That's, good too. That, that should be the next uh, album. It's a more name. universal sounding name. <laughs> How did you guys right. meet? How did the band come together? Well, you know, this guy calls me up one day. He had met me. And, you know, my memory is not the best. So he came to a jam session I was doing in Hartford and he met me. And uh, he played a little bit and he remembered me. And he always said, well, you seem like one of the warmer characters there. And so he calls up some year or so later and he says, hey, man. Can get with the concept. He didn't quite have I that did. kind of voice. Though. I didn't have that voice, but <laughs> hey, hey, hey baby. you want to get with the concept? Yeah. I've been studying with this this bass teacher who was all about the concept, and I thought that must be a universal. I mean, all jazz musicians must talk about the concept. The concept, especially in so, the 80s, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And so were you down with the concept? Or he was. Sort of like, what? Well, I don't well, play. And, ha- and how did you frame the concept? Well, see, but then the concept wasn't Afro-Semitic experience. It was two musicians getting together to make some noise. And 
Afro-Semitic experience took place, what, at least three, four years after we started playing Yeah, I mean, first it was just, you know, it was, at first it was just shits and giggles and lots of notes and good swing. And then at some point he came to me and he said, this guy is the, the one with all the ideas. You know, he says, hey man, why don't we explore our liturgical past together? I remember after you had that really nasty car accident where you were, whole, you were like in the hospital for a good minute with your leg. Remember yes. that? That's when you and I both started listening to the same album at the same time, which was that Charlie Hayden, Hank Jones album in which they were doing spirituals together. And we were both really knocked out by that album. So one of your early, one of the early things you did, your, your Eliyahu Hanavi was pretty early on in your collaboration, wasn't it? Uh, actually, Eliyahu Hanavi predates Afro-Semitic experience. So I had this, I had this gig every other Friday night at this uh, place that's long gone in, from New Haven. And, and that's how Warren and I started really playing together uh, at this place called Charlie B's in, in downtown New Haven. Charlie B's. And I used to rib my rabbi, the guy we were chatting about earlier, Herb Brockman, about how uh, like he has his pulpit on Friday night and I have my pulpit on Friday night. But the weird thing is I started to play Nusach in my solos. I was just really aware that all of these melodies that I'd internalized as a kid were just pouring out of my fingers and then one day i'm in the basement which was where my practice room was because i was relegated to the basement uh i'm practicing and i'm like oh oh look i can do this with eliyahu hanavi so i brought it to the jazz band that, that we had at the time basology and we started playing that out not every friday but every so often and it, and it just became kind of something that we were doing Uh, I had this great teacher um, in in college who used to talk about the whole idea that when you listen to jazz musicians, uh, that you can really hear the church in them. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, he found out I was Jewish. And he's like, well, let's see if there's some synagogue up inside you. <laughs> some and, in you. Yeah, no, but seriously, like, you should play who you are, not right. who you aren't. And um, I'm not. Uh, I'm not African-American. I've never pretended to be African-American, even though I love music uh, that comes from the culture. So why should I posture and pose myself uh, like Lou Reed or any of those other guys who say, I want to be black? I don't want to be black. I mean, it's just like, I don't, who'd want to be Jewish? But, uh, <laughs> but, 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 but I want to take, I want to learn the best that I can from others and then bring it into who I am. Uh, to be to be a more you know fully realized musician, I've seen you guys play a lot in Jewish contexts. Right? Mm -hmm. Do you get black gigs <laughs> every once in a while? And it takes a real effort, actually. I think um, uh, what happens is is that this kind of project is a little bit beyond the 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 purview of a lot of people or the the, the uh, they don't vibe with the concept right well no but right. see but see i better understand concept now so i'd say there's high concept art and we're a little bit high concept i didn't think we were high concept but i can tell you how many places sort of reject us out of hand when we approach them for performances because they think we're too high concept so let me ask you this this Kind of like the meta question of this, uh, which pertains to jazz in general. I mean, there's, there's this 
uh, kind of painful joke that, you know, the difference between a rock musician and a jazz musician is that a rock musician plays four notes in front of 10,000 people and a jazz musician plays 10,000 notes in front of four people. <laughs> you know, do, do you guys, you know, looking at the state of the thing, like amazing, amazing, amazing musicians playing this super complex, wonderful, emotional, stirring uh, music and, and you're kind of... You know, looking at at a lot of what is happening in popular music, does that infuriate? I'd be so angry if I was a jazz musician. Well, Ryan Gosling saved jazz last year. He did. <laughs> never Let's forget. Never forget that. Right. Right. So so so, you know, I actually am one of those people that had just enjoyed the heck out of that movie because it was a fantasy. But I don't want to get. Yeah. But I don't. I don't want to get into. It was a good movie because it was as a movie. It was a good movie. As a jazz movie, it was a shitty movie. But as as a movie, so the thing with it wasn't as good as all the other jazz movies out there <laughs> actually i really dug the ethan hawk chet paker movie yeah. which which really? was, it was, which good. was very yeah. good okay but um we were just talking on the drive down as we were coming here that like sirius xm has hundreds of channels hundreds of channels one jazz channel one jazz know, channel that's crazy. a piece of crap yeah. which is why when uh, the subscription expired i said the hell with that i'm never going to have sirius xm again because why should i give them money if they're not going to support me the reality is that jazz like Jewish music, like so many things that are uh, interesting and high concept and and take a little bit of work to, to get into, uh, there's only going to be so many people who are willing to, to climb that mountain to, to get into it. So like uh, you and I were chatting earlier about how conservatives and reforms won't be around in 10, 15 years, the same thing might be true of jazz. Uh, Do you feel that way? Uh, some days. Some days well, I it do. moves. It moves but, into but, a but classical, think, tradi- an art tradition where, like, there's a there's a, a condescension. It's already done that. Yeah, it's already done. There are ten thousand people with degrees in it. Like, like, where do you go to hear jazz? Well, it used to be you'd go anywhere to hear jazz. Now you go to a, a few shrines, yeah. right? A few temples, a few, of a few jazz. shuls, if you will. Right. a few a few temples of jazz. Um, and that's where you hear jazz. And the vanguard you... is the orthodox. The blue note is a conservative, and <laughs> jazz Lincoln Center is the reform. I mean, it's very, it's renewal. Very... <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Jazz at Lincoln Center is absolutely the the ultra orthodox. Of... Is it really? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I I think I th- we could talk about that later if you want to find the the corollaries. <laughs> Actually, but the bottom line is it's kind of a jazz mall if you think about it. I mean, you know, Dizzy Coca Cola presents all that's kinds right. of little right. Hybrid. Well, that's like the high holiday jazz. services. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to get into. People hey, only go hey, twice we, a year. We, we played a high holiday service this year. Really? Yeah, we did. At, at at a synagogue in New Jersey, we played an early service for the for the families and the kids, and then we played a later quote unquote serious service, and it was it was awesome. So, what do you guys play in that scenario? Well, we play a mixture of whatever they tell us to play. Right? <laughs> we play a mixture of, of 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 liturgical settings and then some of our own music that's relevant uh, here and there throughout the uh, service. It was great. I have a good final question, but does either of you want? No, because no. um, I really I, want to leave a lot of time for music. Yeah, I want to. So I want Noah to take us out by playing uh, your mashup that begins with the Mahalia Jackson. I'm going to live the life. I want to live the life I sing about in my song, which is a favorite of mine. And then it goes into some klezmer. Then it goes into one of your originals. Could you tell us about the evolution of that of that whole piece? Mm. How did that, you guys come up with that? Like, why that? that? Why those that, three? That why those three segments? Yeah, I think he should talk about that. I'm going to start, but y'all got to jump in. Well, sure. Because there's a lot of story back there. So first of all, the reason that that particular set exists is that we were invited to play at the URJ Biennial. So you reformed Jew- big, the Reform Jewish, you know, summit. Look, 
As yeah. soon as the conservatives <laughs> and the orthodox start allowing, you know, live music in the in the synagogue, we'd be happy to bring our music gotcha. to them. But if they don't want it, we'll what talk can to our we people. Do? We'll yeah, talk right. to our people. Yeah. Right? Seriously, <laughs> like like we bring ruach to the house, yo. You do. You do. Um, and and that being said. Uh, we were told, oh, you're going to get to play uh, before Reverend Barber speaks. And oh, my God, what a speech he gave. It was really a call to action um, in terms of, you know, a fight against poverty in America that should be interfaith and, and universal. Doc, uh, Reverend Barber's speech is worth just hearing. There's a link to it on the Afro-Semitic website if you'd like to hear it. Uh, just plugging Reverend Barber because he for was sure. the real reason yeah, uh, for, 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 that, that for that plenary session. And he was one of the most powerful speakers of the entire biennial. And we were asked to play before him to, to get the crowd going. And originally we were being given a whopping 15 minutes to, to, to get the crowd going. And then about a week before the, uh, before the performance, oh, uh, you guys have five minutes. Ooh. And yeah, we, had to take, we had to take our material and figure out how do you tell our story in five minutes? And Warren will take it from there. <laughs> well... The first thing I said was, well, uh, what is the speaker going to be saying? Uh, do we have any idea of what he wants to talk about or how can we frame him? And uh, David said, that's a good idea. Let's check it out. Checked it out. We didn't come up with anything other than 15 songs that we thought could fit quite well. And then all of a sudden, one of the band members Saskia LaRoe. Something. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, it was Saskia. There's Saskia. that name again. Yeah, Saskia really came to the rescue on that one. <laughs> That's right. And next thing you know, she said, well, why don't you take this one song and then segue it into this song and then take it to this other song? So it's Mahalia Jackson into... Into uh, an old Eastern European klezmer tune that goes by a lot of names. It's a wedding song. In, and then into... The Road That Heals the Splintered Soul. Which is one of yours, right? It's yes. one of ours. Right. Yeah, that we co-wrote it. Yeah. Let's hear a little bit of that. I can't go to church and shout on a Sunday. Don't wanna get drunk and wasted. And on a Monday, I got to live the life I sing about in my song. So guys, how do we how do we find out more about the Afro-Semitic experience? How can we listen to you, follow you, go to your concerts? So we have a website, afrosemiticexperience.net, because we are not .com. .net. We'd love to be for profit, but it hasn't worked out yet. <laughs> um, we, so you can you can find out about our upcoming performances. You can get on our email list. If you like our music, you can download music right from the website. If you subscribe to Spotify, we're all over that. We're all over Apple Music. And I think you can still buy our CDs because we still have hundreds of them because people don't buy them no more. Cassettes are back, yo. I should also say, did you guys come up with the little, you have an, uh, some, sometimes you, are, you have a little avatar that says, oi, yo. <laughs> <laughs> Who was, is that, was that original to you guys or? Yeah, 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 I think so. I think it was my son Noah who came up. Do you have a that. bumper sticker, a t-shirt? Yeah, I want, we do. You we do, have, okay. We have t-shirts and bumper stickers still. Let me recommend that you start with the music, but finish with the, with the merch. Guys, thanks so much for being here. David Shivan, Warren Bird, Afro-Semitic Experience. Thank you guys. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank
J. Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I'll be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. The newsletter picks up more subscribers every week. This week, we welcome to the newsletter community the law firm of Karen Schwartz, who actually writes her entire legal firm of Zoom, Schwartz, and Profigliano, LLC, uses the podcast as fodder for their proprietary company-wide drinking game, which involves lattes and flat whites rather than beer and Jaeger. Well. I love a law firm that just like pounds shots of coffee. We are so happy to be the official podcast of Zoom, Schwartz, and Profigliano. Uh, Sarah Bernards also gets the newsletter now. Leslie Rubin, Lindy Sokar, and Tony Tompkinson, Johnny Tinseltown. <laughs> His email is Tony Tompkinson, but he signs the name Johnny Tinseltown. Well, all right, Johnny Tinseltown. I think we'd also like to to welcome some of our Facebook group <laughs> new great. members. Um, I just picked some of the best names. I picked Jody Magnuson because she's from St. Paul or Minneapolis. She's hanging out there with my yeah. brother. Yeah. And Elmer Rich the Third. Oh wow. Elmer Rich the Third. Still trying to hunt that wabbit. <laughs> <laughs> the Waskly Wabbit. Yolanda Wu, who is now a Jew, as we oh, talked yeah, about mazels. on our podcast, Mazel. The greatest Dr. Seuss This was the ever. final part of conversion, That's was joining right. our Facebook group. The great Sarah Fireflinger. Uh, Mert Altus. Mert. Now, what's your real name when they know you as Mert? Myrtle. Myrtle? It's probably Mart. Like, your name is Mark, and you go by Merck. <laughs> Merck. You always get that wrong. Merck. M-A-E-R-K. And then, and then the name that really we have to figure out. We have to figure out who this guy is. This guy joined the Facebook group. It's Ben Jackman Overlander with a hyphen. What do we know about Ben Jackman Overlander? <laughs> well, Ben Overlander, <clears throat> you know, was a, was a nice uh, Jewish boy looking for love. And then he fell in love with a dashing uh, Broadway and Hollywood actor. <laughs> Uh, and then he became Ben Jackman Overlander. Now, Hugh Jackman doesn't know about this. This is just Ben's own tribute to his Hugh favorite. knows about This is what Logan was all about. <laughs> you know? Didn't you pick that up? The gay Jewish wedding <laughs> scene not. at the end? The feel-good scene at the end oh of Logan? Oh, my God. That cheerful film that it was? So big mazel tov to Hugh Jackman and his new spouse, Ben Jackman Overlander. 
The newsletter is not the regular tablet newsletter. It is not. To get this newsletter, sign up on the bottom of our show page at tabletmag.com slash unorthodox or send an email asking for it to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. While you are at it, there's a few other things. There are a few other things you should do. You should rate us on iTunes because that helps keep our iTunes profile spiffy. You should uh, share the show on Facebook. Just if, if every one of you shared it on Facebook this week and picked up one other listener for us uh that would do great things for the future of this podcast um and you should join our facebook group which is now approaching two thousand people it and is so fun it is a lot of fun it's, it's the only reason I, the only thing i do on facebook because everything else on facebook is stupid now it's the only thing i do on social this. media now that i'm off twitter and was never on instagram or foursquare oh i do instagram obviously <laughs> Ob- uh and did you notice i mentioned foursquare does that even still exist yes it does oh it does i think so right okay um, you're the mayor of this studio <laughs> but here's the thing um is that the facebook group is is a lot of fun on the tablet facebook page you can go to groups and join the unorthodox uh, group and we would love to have you and we will hang out with you virtually and then the last thing you should do is don't let us go away from your life subscribe subscribe on itunes or stitcher wherever you get your free podcasts don't count on yourself to remember to go to your desktop computer and click on this button every week have us download automatically into your ears subscribe 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 and subscribe Also, have you ever wanted to do our obscenity warning? Here's another way to participate. Call in a creative obscenity warning to our new listener line at 914-570-4869. Again, 914-570-4869. Start with your name and then warn our listeners against the obscenities we might say. And perhaps you will be delivering the obscenity warning sometime soon. Um, Before Mazel Tov's some sad news, as our Facebook group family knows, Alyssa Goldstein is leaving us at the end of the month. Sad, very sad. We wish you wouldn't, Uh, but she is, and we need to hire a replacement. It's about a half-time job, and it's open to the world, although there's a very specific skill set, and you can learn more. Please see the posting on the scroll, which is Tablet's blog, uh, and you can send your resumes and express interest and ask questions uh, to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Come produce us. Mazel tovs. Liel, what have ye? I would like to extend, I believe on behalf of, of everyone here at Unorthodox, our absolute warmest congratulations to Gwyneth Paltrow for her upcoming, this is not a marriage, but rather the soul-stretching, pattern-breaking opportunities of intimacy that she's about to exchange with her longtime boyfriend, Brad Falchuk. That feels like something that no one should be present for, but the two of them. Brad Falchuk, if my mental... um, He's the TV guy. Glee, right? Yeah. Wow. Do you think they met when she was on Glee? But yeah, don't don't use the word stretching. God willing, this uh, marriage lasts because otherwise she'll have to go, she'll have to consciously uncouple again. Again. Like, I'm just glad my wedding's over because otherwise she would have really stolen my thunder. Stephanie, do you have a Mazel Tov this week? Yes, my Mazel Tov is to my friends Greg and Olivia Beaton. They are listeners of the show and they just had their first baby, Max Beaton. And I have to say, so I went to his bris last week and it was at Road of Shalom. How was the food? It was amazing, but it, yeah. so it was the first of all. I've never seen more people at a bris in my life, and it was. And then the like the party was in the room where our live show was at Rota Sholem. It was so funny. Did uh, the, should, should we go there? Mark Bittman. Did Mark Bittman show no. up? <laughs> yeah, he, was he very rude us. to the baby? But anyway, I'm so happy for them, and he's the cutest little thing. And I'm just really happy for them, and the baby's so cute. And at the bris, someone came up to me and was like. 
we love unorthodox. I met Aww. I met listeners, and they're like, "We saw you walk in, and we thought, oh, that must be Ben Cohen." Like, oh God, amazing! I love it. I love that people now see your arm candy. You're like yeah. Ben Cohen. Is that with, must be Ben that Cohen. Must be Ben Cohen. He's the one who nabbed Stephanie Butnick. Um, Please, we stretched our souls you stre- <laughs> to fit around each other. Oh my God! Uh, so, well, back to Gwyneth for a second. Are they actually going to marry? Will, will vows be exchanged? It's not a marriage. <laughs> God. She's post-marriage. Uh, and a bit belatedly, my mazel tov is to tablet publisher Morty Landown, who a couple weeks ago, I think it was two Parshas ago, laned his bar mitzvah Parsha for the 57th time. Wow. Uh, apparently, according to my sources, he missed one year because he was at somebody else's bar mitzvah. Um, and I guess the kid got to do it and they didn't ask Morty <laughs> to take a piece of it. But, but uh, his 57th time doing his Parsha. Uh, so mazel tov. Morty. That's amazing. And that's actually what a bar mitzvah should be. You should be required to do it every single year. That's like right. renew your bar mitzvahness. Yeah. Yep. Your soul stretching. <laughs> Stretch your soul. <laughs> Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Follow Stephanie on Instagram at sputnik. Join our Facebook group. It's almost 2,000 strong. Our show is produced by Alyssa Goldstein and Shira Telushkin with help from Julia Frakes. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our show is edited by Noah Levinson. Our music is by Golem, who are online at golemrocks.com. And I once saw them perform at a wedding, and it was the hippest wedding in history, and the marriage is still going strong. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Jill Jacobs, whom I sat next to on a flight back from Lamoud. And she was great, and she explained her organization to me, and I went home and gave a donation to Teruah. We record recorded Argo Studios, which got shut out at the Golden Globes this year, and we're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends. 